It truly is a privilege to have the opportunity to preach and teach the Word of God to you this morning. I'm thankful for that. And in my preparation for this, I'm, I'm indebted to some faithful men who, whose work aided me greatly as I prepared to teach this. Our own Pastor Clay and Darren Roberts, Pastor Paul Lamy, as well as Pastor John MacArthur. All, all of those men have a lot of very helpful material for me. So this morning, we'll be continuing our study in the book of Titus. And it's been so helpful for me, and I hope for you, to see how God intends His church to function in the present age. And such specific instruction reveals to us that the Lord cares about what His church is doing. He hasn't left us guessing about what it is. We can be confident that while the world is going off the rails in every respect, morally, economically, politically, the marching orders for God's people don't change. And it's in some ways contrary to our intuitions, because in times of difficulty and crisis, we're tempted to deviate from the sure word that we've been given, and we seek to solve problems in worldly ways. But thankfully, the Lord, in His kindness, has given us very clear instruction that keeps us on track. So, in our study to this point, we've seen that Paul has left Titus in Crete with the insurmountable task of appointing elders in every city and removing the unqualified false teachers who are a threat and danger to the sheep. So after laying out these instructions to godly elders, Paul turns his attention to specific groups of people in the church. We can think of this section in chapter 2 that we've been working through as instructions for God's household. I'm calling that instructions for God's household. We've seen already the marks of a godly assembly stand in stark contrast to the moral decay of the world. We saw this in the decay of the false teachers at the close of chapter 1. So, so far in chapter 2, we've seen these instructions to older men who are to model the truth lived out for us. And the older women, how they're supposed to encourage and teach the younger women in the ways that God wants them to live. And Tuck, just last week, explained what should characterize us young men as we strive to live holy lives. What should characterize us? And all of these are essential instructions for a robust body life. And as we're going to see today, a glorious opportunity to participate in the redemptive work of our Lord. Paul knows that a church that's maturing in these things is a church that will have a profound gospel influence. A mature church will be very effective in personal evangelism. Why is that? That's because their life backs up their message. They proclaim a gospel that transforms And though they're imperfect, they model that transformation. On this topic of evangelism, have you ever heard someone say, 
I wish our church did more to reach the lost. Our church is a mission-driven church. We, we do a lot to reach people for Jesus. Well, in more cases than not, this often involves some sort of elaborate marketing campaign complete with social media promotions, community outreach events, perhaps even TV spots. We've, we've all seen attempts to market Christianity on a large scale, to get our message out. And increasingly, we're, we're seeing a very commercialized, consumer-driven approach to church, and it's all justified under the banner of reaching people for Jesus. And the uncomfortable reality is that this is done in all sorts of ways that is foreign to the Scriptures. And in many ways, contrary to how the New Testament describes true gospel evangelism. Listen to this quote from John MacArthur. I search the pages of the New Testament, and I cannot find a strategy for mass evangelism. I cannot find a strategy for literature distribution. And I certainly can't find a strategy for media campaigns. I can't find a strategy for anything, really, other than a very simple New Testament plan for evangelism. There's no scheme given here for how to capture the attention of the masses. There's only a plan given for how to capture the attention of individuals. And a lot of money and effort is spent funding these sorts of endeavors, and for any of the attention that it might draw is undermined by the example of the Christians behind them. At least in very many cases. Pastor Jerry Ragg frequently says that an unholy life lacks credibility. It lacks credibility. And, and that makes sense, because why would anyone listen to a messenger when the messenger doesn't live by the message? Or to say it another way, the messenger's life is contradictory to the message. No amount of lip service can offset a life that's filled with sin. Let's look at chapter 1. If you're not already there, open to Titus. Chapter 1, verse 16 for a moment. We've already seen this. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Being detestable, disobedient, and worthless, for any good deed. Now God takes our personal witness seriously. And as Jeremiah taught us, a life that's marked by unrepentant sin undermines and denies the Spirit's work. It doesn't point to a transformer because the life doesn't look transformed. And a transformed life is essential for evangelism. What we're going to see in this text is that the Bible prescribes a personal evangelism. A personal evangelism that's marked by godly living. This text in no way describes a mass marketing campaign or an outreach. We don't see a charismatic figure that's leading a movement to help people have an encounter with God or experience Jesus. You know, we're often tempted to think that we really could be more effective, more influential for Christ if we had a platform. If we were more societally important. 
It's true that God uses all kinds of people in those positions. But what's really incredible about our text this morning is that Paul shows that even the most lowly in society can have an incredible gospel influence. God wants to put His power on display through the lives of the societal lowly, the economically unimpressive, and the civilly unimportant. Here in Titus 2, even the slaves have an astounding opportunity to be used of God as personal evangelists in their context through good works. And they're driven by a profound motivation of service to their heavenly Master. So, And we're going to see today rich implications for us today in our context as employees and employers. Have you ever thought, if I had a better job, or a larger platform, or more influential position on campus, then I could really be effective in serving Christ? Well, Paul's got something here for you today on that. Turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10 this morning. Let's read together. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So this final group that Paul is speaking to are slaves. And it's important when we approach any text in Scripture to identify the audience. So here, we want to understand exactly who these folks are. And the NAS says bond slave. And that's translated that way because in the Greek, the word is doulos. You've probably heard that word before listening to other sermons. And in a doulos, it means someone who's under submission or in bondage. And from that, we get bond slave. Now this group is distinct. Because up to this point, Paul has been dealing with age and gender differences. We, you know, we had the, the older men and older women and younger women and young men. Now we're dealing with a distinct group. He directs his attention now to a group that really would make a lot of sense to the believers in Crete. You see, slavery was a widespread practice in the Greco-Roman world. So much that a significant portion of Cretan believers were slaves. Very likely. Or at least, they were affected by it in some way. Everyone was affected by it in some way. Now, we must acknowledge that slavery is a fundamentally evil institution. But it's also important to understand here as we study this text that slavery in the Roman world was very different than the form of American slavery that we tend to think of when we hear this term. So what was it? Well, in Rome, it wasn't racially based. People were not bought and sold on the amount of melanin they had. Very evil. As Rome conquered through their various wars, they collected a lot of slaves. Some of them were forced to serve as soldiers in Rome's massive army, They were also, many of them, put to work on the the massive architecture that we see in Rome. 
a lot of that is the product of slave labor. We see some of those remains even today. So first, this was a consequence of war. A consequence of war. So, but this term doulos has a broader meaning than even that. In many cases, the poor and economically struggling actually voluntarily became slaves as a means for providing for themselves. There are plenty of instances where people became slaves by choice. And this may surprise you, but many of them were actually treated very well. They were permitted to have their own families, marry and have children, and had a great deal of freedom. In fact, some were given sections of land and materials for a home. They actually received some level of compensation for their labor. This relationship was actually very positive for many of them. Not all, but many of them. It allowed the financially struggling to have some means to provide for themselves and their families. And further, masters delegated a lot of responsibility to their slaves. Some acted on behalf of their masters in their business endeavors and so forth. So you can see from that that this is a widespread thing in Roman culture, and it's a much broader term than the evils of chattel slavery that occurred largely here in the American South in our history. Now from this text, if, briefly, if you're concerned here that Paul is affirming slavery as a good or even acceptable practice, he's not. We don't see anywhere in Paul's writings, or the Bible as a whole for that matter, justifying or permitting slavery. However, Paul knows the reality of life in the Roman world. And he's acknowledging that human institutions, even evil ones, exist. Even evil ones like slavery. But the issue for Paul here is not one's position in society. It's not someone's position in society. It's not not what matters. Listen to Galatians 3.28. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul Amy said that in Ephesians 6, another parallel text that has a lot of relevance to this section, Paul asserts something that was revolutionary for their day and our day as well. That slaves and masters are equal before God, the true master. And though human institutions exist, the gospel breaks down such sinful divisions and structures. And I would contend that that given this widespread context of slavery in the Greco-Roman world, we can draw some parallels from this master-slave relationship to the employer-employee relationships that we have today. We know that the Holy Spirit knew that we would be reading this. And He's revealed His Word for us too. Yet, so yes, while Paul is speaking to the slaves and has instruction for them in their context, there are implications for us as well. So now that we've established who this group is, we need to talk about what he's telling them. Paul's telling them that they should possess some characteristics. We've already read our verses. MacArthur refers to this section as essentials for effective evangelism. And the reason for that 
can be seen in the three purpose statements in chapter 2. Now, you've already gotten two of them so far in previous lessons, so you should be tracking with this. They're the so that statements in verses 5, 8, and 10. Look at verse 4, and he's talking about the example of the older women and the younger women here. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be sensible and pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Here it is. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. So that the word of God won't be dishonored. Secondly, in verse 8, Titus should be sound in speech, beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So as Tuck mentioned last week, this is us in the corporate sense as Christians. Don't miss the significance here. Your dignified speech will prevent those who would accuse you from having any credible accusation that would reflect poorly on you and the people of God. And more importantly, how it reflects on God Himself. So hopefully, you're seeing the connection between our conduct and the effectiveness of our Gospel witness. This theme in chapter 2 of personal holiness being used as a means of God for evangelism. So don't miss the personal aspect of that. This morning, from verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, Paul is going to give us five marks of an employee that beautifies the Gospel message. That's five marks of an employee that beautifies the Gospel message. Let's look at the first one. They are comprehensively submissive. Comprehensively submissive. Look at verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. So there are three things I want you to notice here about the the first part of verse 9. First, Paul tells them to be subject. To be subject. What does that mean? When Clay taught us some principles for employees from Ephesians 6, he described this as a rightful obedience. Rightful obedience. It's comprehensive. It's not partial. It's it's complete. It's not halfway. They fully submit in rightful obedience. So for us, we are to be characterized by submission. We're to be characterized by submission. So now for us, we are blessed with a lot more comfortable circumstances than the Cretan slaves. Right? Like in our situation, we have civil rights. A lot more than the slaves in Crete did. And, and we can appeal up the ladder if mismanagement or abuse is taking place. It's not wrong to avail yourself of those. In fact, Paul himself asserted his rights as a Roman citizen. So secondly, under this, this first point, I want you to see that it's within the framework of biblical authority. It's within the framework of biblical authority. This isn't a command to be subject to everyone. It's a command to be subject to your own masters. So for us then, in our context, we're to be rightfully obedient to our own boss. And third, under this first point, it's in everything. 
It's in everything. And, th- and that's, that's where I'm getting the term comprehensive. In everything, I need to be submitted to my boss within the framework of your job, where you are employed, you're to be obedient to your boss. You may say, I don't like my boss, so I'm going to go along with what I'm told, but I'm still going to make his or her life difficult in other ways. That's not obedience. It's not. Can I just tell you for a moment that this obedience to submit to our bosses is on a heart level? This is not an outward, go-through-the-motions type of thing. This has to be convictional truth for us. Convictional. Meaning we have to know what the Scriptures say, and we have to earnestly believe them. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 6. This should be a very familiar text for most of you. Ephesians 6. We're going to read verses 5-8. through eight. This, this is a parallel text to, to what we're, we're dealing with this morning. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So you see here, obey your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, as a, with a sincere heart. As to who? Well, that's to Christ Himself. So those of you who are here, in April, when Clay taught us this text, we'll remember this profound motivation. This profound motivation that we have in our work that's done diligently unto the Lord is that it's worship to Christ. Same idea here in Titus 2. So Paul doesn't qualify the submission to masters. He just says to submit. So if that boss is a bad guy or a bad gal, remember... You're looking through him or her at Christ because He is the one that you're serving. And if you read further in this passage, we see an incredible eternal motivation. Verse 8, Whatever you do unto the Lord will be rewarded. This is profound motivation for us who are slugging it out. And it, it needs to fuel us as we diligently seek to obey this. So secondly, second point, they're sincerely helpful. Look at verse 9 again. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. So secondly, they're sincerely helpful. To be well-pleasing in everything. So at your job, you're to be well-pleasing in everything you do to the best of your ability. Seek to please your boss. We don't get a pass when the boss isn't looking. Remember, this is an all-encompassing command. And this requires a lot of effort on our part. Because it gets tough. And that's why I'm calling this sincerely helpful. Because it takes sincere devotion. 
in order to please. The reality is, it may be impossible to please your boss. But to the best of your ability, you are to give your all to achieve that. And once again, when this gets difficult, and it's not a question of if, it's when it will get difficult, what has to motivate us is that your service to the Lord, it's to the Lord, being pleasing to Him. The Greek word here for well-pleasing is actually a term used recurrently in the New Testament for believers pleasing the Lord Himself. You can write a few of these down. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Also in chapter 14 of Romans, verse 18. Same word being used in Philippians 4, 18. And in Colossians 3. And we're going to look at Colossians 3 briefly here. Turn over there. I think this would be helpful for you. We're going to start reading in verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who would merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Notice, it's not with external service as those who would please men, but whatever you do, we're working heartily for the Lord rather than men. The focus is on the Lord. And once again, see our eternal motivation here in verse 24. Knowing that we will receive the reward of the inheritance. Key in here, it's the Lord who you serve. How helpful is that for us when we're tempted to give up in desperation when our boss can't be pleased despite our every effort. Third, they're pleasantly agreeable. Pleasantly agreeable. See verse 9 of chapter Two of Titus again. You can turn back over there. The NAS uses the term not argumentative. Essentially, this means don't talk back. The the KJV uses not answering again. I thought that was helpful. My parents used to say don't back talk. When we were given some sort of parental instruction and I started coming back with an answer of some sort, Usually in my case, it was a complaint or an attempt to argue my way out of what I was told to do. Don't backtalk your parents. Got a lot of spankings for that one. Now, if you have a dynamic equivalent, the New Living Translation uses this term, talking back, and I think it conveys what Paul's saying here. Whatever you are doing at your job, don't talk back. Don't argue with your boss. Don't be described as someone who's contradictory. Now, some of you may be wondering... What if my boss is wrong? Right? I'm sure you've never dealt with a boss who's wrong about something. This doesn't mean that you can't appeal to your boss. I'm not saying you can't appeal to your boss. In fact, appealing to your boss is a very God-honoring way to approach your boss. Avail yourself of the avenues given to you 
and provide helpful feedback. You may even be able to counsel your boss with something very helpful. Now, your motivation for doing that is the good of your boss and the company. It's not a self-serving motive. And remember, anything you do here is ultimately in the interest of pleasing the Lord. That's got to be at the forefront of our minds here. This is, this is perhaps one of the most important things. We, we need to ask ourselves in the moment, is the Lord pleased by how I'm about to respond? Or is the Lord pleased by what's going on in my heart right now and what wants to come out? So this is perhaps one of the best ways that you can demonstrate a transformed life in the workplace. Because a lot of people usually have something to say back when you tell them to do something. Listen, show your boss and your coworkers that you have the Spirit of God inside you as you seek to please your boss and ultimately the Lord. Well, that leads us to our fourth point. Our fourth point. And that's that they're convictionally honest. How often do you see people being dishonest in the workplace? Or maybe the more important question, how honest are you at work? How do you handle company resources? How do you report progress? How do you present yourself? If you're a slacker, and you're giving the impression that you're hardworking, that's deceitful. And Paul calls it stealing. Look at verse 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So not pilfering. Here's the contrast, showing all good faith. So notice the first part, pilfering. That's an interesting word. And I'm sure it's probably not something that's frequently used in your vocabulary. Definitely not in mine. But it it kind of sounds like what it means, which is embezzlement. Embezzlement or petty thievery. Petty thievery. So... um, Judas was a great example of an embezzler. He, he stole money out of the money bag and he padded his pockets with the resources that belonged to the twelve and he kept it for himself. He had the money bag and he made use of it dishonestly. This, this word pilfering connotes stealthy thievery. Stealthy thievery. Another example of this in the Scriptures would be Acts 5 where Ananias and Sapphira were secretly dishonest about the amount of money they gave to the church, keeping back some for themselves, but presenting it like they gave all they had. Right? You remember that. But God brought it to light. Listen, God struck them dead in the church. He struck them dead. God takes our honesty very seriously. And dishonesty to our employer is dishonesty to Christ. This ups the ante a bit when we think of honesty in the workplace within this framework. Remember, your honesty needs to show Christ in what you do. He is the most unequivocally honest of all. He's the perfect example of honesty. We must represent Him well. Fifthly, this is our final mark here, They're consistently dependable. Consistently dependable. Verse 10, showing all good faith, right? They will adorn the doctrine 
of God, our Savior, in every respect. I get consistent from the text here because it, it says showing all good faithfulness. This is the, the Greek verb here is indechnomy. Indechnomy. And it, it's, it's literally translated to give ample evidence. So, the, so give evidence and give it amply. Evidence of what? Faithfulness or dependability. This connotes consistency. You're, you're dependable and your boss knows it. If you're all over the place with your track record, you're going to be unreliable. And that will undermine your witness. Remember, the purpose that we're getting at here is to adorn the doctrine of God. MacArthur said, The purpose of your living this way is that the word of God may not be dishonored, that the opponents may be shamed and silenced, and that those who are watching us may indeed see that we have a saving God, a God who delivers people from sin. So our striving here must have purposeful intent. And that intent is to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. So with the time that we have left, let's look at this word adorn. What does it mean? Well, in the English, it, it's, a, it's a verb that, that means to beautify or, or to make attractive. It implies that something is made beautiful by an object or thing. And it, it has an enhancing effect. The Greek word is cosmeto. And it sounds like the word cosmetics. And that's because it's a root of that word. The word cosmetics is a root of the word cosmeto. The Greek indicates that it's a careful arrangement for the sake of making something beautiful. This involves a purposeful arranging of our, of our lives, right? A purposeful arranging of our lives in a way that accurately reflects God's beauty. Now, at a glance... This may seem to indicate that Paul is saying that the gospel needs us and our good works in order to make it beautiful. But to come to that conclusion would really elevate our importance and it would make the gospel dependent on us. And that's not the case. This, I think, is saying that by our virtuous living, we rightly image God to the unbelieving world. The gospel itself is beautiful. It needs no cosmetics to make it beautiful. In fact, we're the least likely candidates for making the gospel beautiful by our own effort. Right? At one point, we were the very opposite of beautiful. Like those described in chapter 1, verse 16, we denied Christ by our deeds. We were detestable. We were disobedient. We were worthless for any good deed. Our imaging of God was warped. It was broken. And we need to remember that we brought nothing to the table. Instead of rightly imaging God the way He created us to, pre-Christ, we were the opposite of what we should have been. Instead of imaging His holiness, we were an affront to it. We were detestable, worthless, unfit. Listen, but Christ has redeemed us and made us righteous by the power of God. We can have confidence in His death for us. 
right? In His past work of salvation. Remember Ephesians 5, verse 8. We were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. This truth will not only motivate us to live holy and transform lives, but it is also the means by which we live that way. The means by which we live that way. We're empowered now by the Spirit to live righteously. So we need to remember that any good works that we produce is from the Lord who saved us. So then, the grace of His salvific work enables us for good deeds. We're justified, declared righteous judicially through Christ's death. This has to be the foundation of our ongoing effort in sanctification. As we're striving to put off the old man, our flesh, that we still have. Look at Colossians 3 again. This time, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he, he lists all the ways here that we were evil. In these two you once walked when you were living them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, key in here, after the image of His Creator. After the image of its Creator. So it doesn't stop after salvation. His grace is a means by which we're faithful in these areas. He's prepared us for good works. Right? We know that also from Ephesians 2, verse 10. You don't have to turn there. For we are His workmanship. His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre- prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is just thrilling. This should, this should make your heart swell. By those means, our King allows us to participate in His redemptive work to redeem the curse. You may be saying, really? My faithfulness at work has the capacity to redeem the curse? Yes, because as you slug it out, striving and living this out by rightful, faithful obedience, empowered by the Spirit, you're participating in His work. This is just profound motivation for us. It's profound. So look at Titus 2 again. Paul gives us the redemptive purpose in verse 14. So let's read there from verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for our blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds." So there's the greater redemptive purpose. To purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Zealous for good deeds. We're zealous to live in a way that images Him rightly. One writer said, the fundamental teaching of this epistle is the redemptive work of God 
through Christ must lead to changed lives. I just thought that was a real helpful, concise way of summarizing the amazing content of this epistle. Evangelistic strategies employed via a mass marketing campaign are not the secret formula to reaching the lost. Instead, by God's design, the virtuous living of His people are the means by which He saves. And this truth of godly living transcends even the work context. The greater theme of chapter 2 is that all areas of our lives are to be transformed. They're They're to reflect godly character. When believers are living transformed lives, they go out into their various contexts each week and showcase the Gospel in a beautiful way. Our transformed lives point directly to the transformer. Directly to the transformer. This isn't then, if you're feeling beat up by this, this isn't just a list of rules that gain us some favor from God. This is the transforming power of the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ on display for the unbelieving world. And that, dear friends, is amazing truth. That should motivate us in the most profound way. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this incredible text and the truths in it. We are just amazed by Your beauty and the power of Your Gospel through the work of Your Son. Thank You for saving us, making us alive when we were detestable and worthless. And further, Lord, You give us the glorious opportunity to image You rightly. And You use us as instruments by which you may draw others to yourself. Father, we pray that you would get the glory for all that you do. And I pray that we would be changed today by what you've taught us in your word.